This is from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Thank you. If you would have a seat, and uh, also, as you are having a seat, if you would uh, pray God's blessing on his word this morning. God and Father, you have spoken to us. You have spoken to us uh, through your word, uh, through the scriptures, uh, Lord, but you have also spoken to us through the word that is your son. Uh, Lord, I pray that this morning would be uh, just an accentuation out of your written word. Uh, the great and glorious Savior that we have that is the one true and everlasting word. Father, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts this morning through this psalm and that you would carry us through it, uh, teaching us something about who you are. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Well, psalms, and, and you've probably heard something like this before, psalms express the full range of human emotion. Uh, if you haven't ever heard that before, it's actually a really deep statement. I'd uh, just uh, challenge you to tuck it in your pocket because uh, we as a people are made to be emotional. I know that we live in a society that maybe uh, tells people to eschew emotions, to live in reason, uh, but the truth is, is that God is an emotional God. And having an emotional intelligence, not based on what uh, people in society think is healthy or what a psychologist thinks is healthy. Uh, what the literature thinks is healthy, but what God's Word actually says is healthy is very important to us. So when I say that the Psalms express a full range of human emotion, I also mean that they can teach us how to think about, how to experience our feels, okay? I want for us to be a healthy, feeling church. I want for us to know that we can be formed in healthy ways. That means that for uh, those of us who uh, just have uh, great stoicism in us, the Psalms give us permission to actually emote, to actually have some sort of desire, some sort of eff uh, affection. For those of us who uh, really are ruled by our emotions, what the Psalms are going to do is help restrain and hem in some of those uh, things so that we can think about things and feel about things the way that God thinks and feels about things. So when we take a look at the exuberance of Psalm 66, we can be formed with some sort of excitement about what God is doing in this world. When we take a look at the courage of Psalm 108, we can be emboldened. For those of us who lack confidence, we can actually learn and understand what it means to be a courageous Christian. When we take a look at the gratitude of Psalm 18, we can uh, fight some of the ingratitude and entitlement that our hearts, and let's be frank, this culture wants to teach us with a deep sense of thankfulness. The Psalms are actually very useful 
So when we take a look at a psalm of uh, wisdom, we can wonder at it. When we look at an honest penitential psalm, we can be formed in the ways that we are penitent, the ways that we confess sin like we did earlier. Psalms can lift us up to the highest heights and they can comfort us in our lowest lows. And so what I want to encourage you this morning is to spend time there, to spend time in the psalms. It is uh, a reality that for uh, many in this church, maybe even most, maybe over 50% of us have either been in counseling or uh, are in counseling currently. If you're trying to do that, if you're trying to do some heart, soul, and mind work without being in the Psalms, I want to encourage you, be in the Psalms. They will form us. See, I, I don't say that with any sense of like distance from that statement. I want you to know that my life is owed to the Psalms. You see, in, in school, both high school and in college, I, I was facing just a lot of confusion, a lot of depression, a lot of misunderstanding about what uh, the meaning of life truly was. I think that for many of us, we go through those young adult ages really wanting to know something deep, wanting to know what truth is, wanting to be honest and genuine people, the way that we were created to be. And what I did was I met all of that truth in Psalm 51, the psalm that we just prayed through earlier. That psalm met me in that tender place and taught me not only about my sin and confession, but what it calls us to, which is a life of praise. If you go to that penitent psalm, if you go to that psalm that starts and ends with confession, you will find sandwiched in there a desire for life a desire for praise, a desire for worship that accompanies that confession. So when we hear, have mercy on me, O Lord, your heart is formed to confess something. Why? Because I have sinned against you. Alone have I sinned against you. And then this plea for a created and clean heart, a renewal in right spirit. So the Psalms actually do something. They have done something for me. They have taught me to go to those places, but then also to open my lips in praise. That Psalm there taught me what repentance was. In fact, earlier with our kind of lead team this morning, we gathered up and I asked that team, what was the first you know, uh, piece of scripture that really formed you? The one that you remember, that you remember the spirit of God working through and woven into who you were. And the first two answers, the only two answers that we got this morning were actually uh, either a Psalm or an area of scripture that taught about what sin was, what confession was. That's a wonderful place to be formed. What we see is that actually psalms like this, Psalms uh, 6 and 38 and 51 and 102 and 143 are just like what we confront this morning in Psalm 130. They are penitent. They teach us to pray and to confess. And we will pray that this morning this psalm will enliven and enrich healthy emotion in us as a church. That's my goal. I want for the psalm to actually shape us, to do something in us this morning, to shape the way that we feel. And what we discover when we get here to Psalm 130 is that we wait with hope in a loving Lord of redemption. We wait with hope in a loving Lord of redemption. And, and as we go through this psalm, you're going to see that there are depths of despair that we kind of start in, but then we've got to know what it is to uh, be waiting like watchmen, even in those moments, and then we've got to confront the reality of a loving Lord. So we start low in the depths of despair, we learn what it is to wait like watchmen, 
And then we learn how to exalt the loving Lord. That's how we're going to learn this morning that we wait with hope in a loving Lord of redemption. So this morning, we're back after a few weeks out of the Psalms of Ascent. We're back in our series, the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are teaching us to climb into worship, to ascend into worship, to teach us what it means to be a healthy worshiper. So we're back in the Psalms of Ascent really for four more weeks, and then we're going to turn our attention to the first, second, and third book of John for the summer, and we're going to start something uh, new in the fall, uh, Lord willing, with, uh, with a new pastor on board, with, uh, with someone that we hire. So on a quick note, I want you guys to know that uh, we are going to, as a church, uh, fast and pray this Wednesday. If you would join us, some I know are, can't do Wednesday, and so Tuesday, Thursday, whatever works for you best. But as a church, we're going to be actually praying and fasting, using the pangs of hunger to remind us to pray that God would bless us as we make a decision over the next week and a half to hire and call a new pastor. If you would do that, if you would join with us there, that's going to be this Wednesday. So uh, I, I hope that you would. But once we are there, we're going, to be, uh, we're going to spend the next four weeks there, then in John, and then we're going to be starting a new, uh, a new series in the fall. And this starts, this particular psalm starts in a personal place. It starts in a personally penitent place, but it ends in a corporately assured place. So it starts with the personal, and then it gathers God's believers into his assurance. So that tells us something. It tells us that our individual worship affects our corporate worship. If you don't know this, you need to know this. Your personal worship actually uh, helps take and shape uh, the character, the contours of our corporate worship. If you ever look at the body of believers here at City Church and uh, wonder uh, why it is so, so thankful, it's because we're made up of a thankful people. If you ever wonder why maybe uh, there's some languidness and some uh, sorrow, it might be because we together are in a season of sorrow. If you take a look at City Church and you wonder why in a season there might be a lack of worship, one of the things that we need to do is look inwardly. How am I individually cultivating enriched worship in me? And then expecting that to take root, to uh, flavor, to season this congregation of believers. It starts with the individual, but then it goes out to the corporate, and it has everything to do with worship. This psalm is real about those dynamics, and it starts in a very bold, a very honest, and a very public place. Join with me in the depths of despair. Verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Right from the get-go, we get the idea that the psalmist is wanting to get God's attention. And he's not doing it in a private place. He's not cloistered away somewhere. He's doing it in public. He's crying out to the Lord. And he's asking the Lord to give him his ear, to give him attention. This is a bold thing to do, not just because it's bold in public, but because it is bold into the Lord. But he says that he is in the depths, out of the depths I cry to you. And I wonder this morning if you've ever found yourself in these kinds of depths, if you've ever found yourself in a valley, if you've ever found yourself in the depths of despair. And I want you to think just for one moment, not to just let that question like go over you, but to think specifically about a time where you might have been in greatest despair. What season of life did you find yourself in the pit? 
Where were you in the depths of despair? I wonder also not just where you were, but what your response was, how you reacted to that depth. Was it in self-pity? Was it in self-loathing? Was it in anger? Was it in depression? Was it in the eating of comfort food? How did you respond to the depths that you were in? Did you look for distraction and entertainment? But here's the question that comes right out of this very first verse. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. What is he doing? He's acknowledging where he's at. I wonder if you were willing to just simply acknowledge the season that you were in. Now, for some, it's like, of course I did. I let everybody know exactly where I am at all times. But here's the truth. For a uh, very loud, some would say obnoxious type of person, I know that personally it can be very difficult to let people know when I am in the depths, when I'm in the shallows. Uh, My wife, very regularly, over the course of uh, now 15 years of marriage, uh, sees it in me when I'm in the depths, and she'll ask me about it. She'll say, hey, you know, are you experiencing, you know, uh, are you, you know, kind of uh, melancholy? Are you uh, depressed? Like, you know, where are you right now? And my response really, uh, up until just the last, like, year and a half, has almost categorically been, no, I'm good. I'm fine. So sometimes it, I was not trying to be evasive. I wasn't trying to be false. I just didn't know. I, I didn't have like the intelligence to know that I was not doing good. I was in the depths. I was in the midst of a uh, depression and I just couldn't even see it. But then on the other side of that, there were times where I was depressed and I just didn't want anybody else to know about it, including my wife. So she would ask, hey, how are you doing today? I'd be like, good, I'm good, I'm not weak. Like, what, why, do you see something? Like, it, it, it can be very easy for us to not acknowledge when we are in those seasons, and it can be also easy for us to deny when we are. But here we see the model for this, just to simply acknowledge that they are in the depths. I cry to you, O Lord. So how do you respond? You've acknowledged it, but how do you actually respond? Well, you don't take it on yourself You don't take it out on yourself. You don't take it out on your children. You don't take it out on your spouse. You don't take it out on the stranger driving in the car next to you. What you do is you give it to the Lord. I cry to you, O Lord. I wonder if you've ever cried out to the Lord. Ask yourself that. I don't want that just to be like an empty question. Have you ever gotten on your knees and literally just cried out to the Lord? Are you willing to be formed by this psalm just to acknowledge where you're at, to acknowledge the depths, and to say, I rely on you. I'm not going to rely on myself. I cry out to you, O Lord. If not, I wonder if your God is either too small to receive your cries or if he, you believe that he is too aloof to care about it. But I want you to know that you are perfectly able to cry out to the Lord in the moments of depths and depression. But there is a question in our minds whether or not God cares, whether or not he is attentive, whether or not he notices, and the very next verse should be encouraging to us because the psalmist wonders as well. The psalmist says, I cry out to you, O Lord, be attentive to the voice of my pleas, but he tells us where the source of the depths is. Be attentive to the voice of my pleas for what? For mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? 
okay. Now, up until this point, you could believe that where we were going this morning was to talk about some sort of depression that you might be experiencing. We've even been talking about it in those terms. But what we see here is we see the source of the depths. It's not uh, something chemical going on in the psalmist's mind. It's not some sort of emotion that's happening at some superficial level. It's not a brokenness in relationship that's leaving them alone in the depths. It's sin. Where do I see that? It's right there. My pleas for mercy. Here, my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, it's a fancy word for sin, transgression, the breaking of God's law, the doing of things that God counts as being immoral, not in accordance with his perfect and holy will and his righteous and sovereign character. Those are the things that have led him into the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, I cry to you, be attentive to my voice, my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And that is a great question. Who could stand? If God was to count iniquities, who is it that could stand? In some sense, we really have found the cause of the depths. It's not something that is missing in the psalmist. It's something that is present in the psalmist. The psalm is making a cry of confession because he has sinned, and his sin has left him in depths of despair. There are no deeper depths. There, no, there is no darker dungeon. There is no more sorrowful cell of soul, uh, uh, than a soul full of sin. And the question is, O oh Lord, who could stand? We're, we're given a word picture here. The question that is in front of us is, if God counted iniquities, if he took all of your sins and just tallied them on a board over and over again for your entire life, who could stand in the midst of that? The one who knows every single, uh, you know, everything that you could possibly confess. Every time that you may have uh, been unkind in your thoughts or selfish in your motivations or lustful in your actions, every little lie that you've ever told, the question that is in this psalm is who could stand if God were to make a tally make a mark for every single one of them. And there is news here. The answer is that, of course, no man, no woman could stand if God counted their transgressions against them. Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. That's the same word that we're going to see twice in our psalm today. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have, fall, they have all fallen away together, become corrupt in their sin. There is none who does good, not even one. That, that's, that's the formation of the truth. If you're one of those people that's just crying out for truth, how do you understand where you are? How do you understand where your heart is? Psalm 53 should tell us something about ourselves this morning. And we get it. We should understand that the bad news is that there is no one that can stand because we've all done abominable iniquity and no one could possibly stand. So in that situation, where is their hope? 
What we get is some flavor of what the psalmist is after this morning. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Why? Because he's looking internal, he's looking at his sin, and he's decided that there is a lot of room for despair there. Where is there hope? And what we find is that there is hope in waiting like a watchman. Verse 5, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. We're going to see this word hope mentioned twice. There is actual hope. If you are in the depths of despair in your sin, you can, one, either remain there. You can remain in the depths. You can choose to stay there in the midst of your sin. I see that all the time. You see it all the time. We experience that, if we're being honest, all the time. The choice to actually stay mired in our own sin. And that's really hard. Or, number two, we cannot remain, but we can wait with hope. Now, that might be surprising. Because for us, I mean, you know, good, hard-working Americans, we want to know that it's not waiting, it's working. I don't want to stay in some pit. I'll, you know, climb my way out. I'll build a ladder. I'll figure my way out of the pit of despair. And what the psalmist says is you can't do that. You've got to wait Who do you wait on? You've got to wait on the Lord. Remember, this psalm was written prior to Christ, before Christ, before his coming. Remember also that this psalm is teaching us a truth about our sin. You cannot pull yourself out of the cosmic consequences of your sin. Only God can do that. And that's why the psalmist waits. He doesn't work. He waits. The psalmist recognizes the seriousness of sin, his powerlessness to do anything about it, but he also sees God's power to help us out of the pit. Verse 6 says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. So we get this word picture of a city covered in darkness, the danger of the night. I want you to imagine that there's not a police force in Fort Worth that we're all kind of congregated and that there are nations surrounding that might uh, wish to come over and you know, take, uh, take over the walls, infiltrate the city, to come in. And so what we did together was we appointed some vigilant people to stand watch over the city. I want you to imagine that that watchman's job every evening is to go climb in a turret, in a tower, see the sun fall, and know that there is darkness, complete darkness, no street lights. No spotlights, no way to see what's coming. Would you feel a sense of danger? Of course we would. This is saying that the psalmist waits. How? Like a watchman for the morning. Like a watchman for the morning. There's this weary watchman who's been staying awake, keeping people safe all night, and they're just waiting for the light. The watchman is powerless to bring the morning, but he is expectant and hopeful for its coming. He waits for the relief of his dangerous duty. He waits for daybreak. He waits for the brightening of his eyes with that first gleam of light over the horizon to know that he will be safe, the warmth of the morning sun. And I wonder, does your soul wait this way? way. Wait with hopeful expectation. Wait with faith, with longing for the relief from sin. But here's the question that we've got to answer. What is the psalmist waiting for? And how does that relate to to what we now today wait for? 
Well, the gospel is really woven in throughout this text. We see three times the word wait. We see that there is twice where uh, the, the quality of that waiting is like watchmen for the morning. But we are told specifically what the psalmist is waiting for. He's waiting on the Lord. The psalmist knows who he's waiting for. Not what, not what season, not a time, not a dispensation, who he's waiting for. The only one who can pull him from the depths, pull him from the despair, is the Lord. And so he waits with hope. He waits with hope. Two times he says it, he waits with hope. But what does he wait with hope in? Verse 5, he waits with hope in his word. In his word I in his word, I hope. He's not even just telling us some, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, put together like plan that he just trusts and hopes in God. He says that he hopes in his word. But he also says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So we see twice this word hope is used, and it's tying together the word of God and the Lord. And we would see John, the apostle, we would see him agreeing with this. In the beginning was who? It doesn't say Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. What we see all these centuries before Christ is that the Holy Spirit is indwelling this psalmist and causing the psalmist to say, what do I have hope in? And so I want to ask you this morning, what do you have hope in? And he's tying together his hope in the Word and his hope in the Lord. They're one thing. And now, we are not psalmists looking forward to the Christ, looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to the chosen one. We're not uh, Old Testament uh, believers. We're not Israel looking forward to what God might do to redeem his people. What we are as Christians, knowing that we are both looking backwards at what he has done, the word has come. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. We look back at Jesus and we also look forward to the day when he will come again and where he will come and rescue us from all of the depths of despair that are in this life. We know that the gospel here is that the word is what we hope in. The Lord is what we hope in. The psalmist is putting his hope in the Lord, in the word. He's inspired the Holy, by the Holy Spirit to put his hope in Jesus Christ. Those in depths of despair and sin can put their hope in the Lord, in the Word of God, and that is Christ Jesus. So when verse 3 asks us this all-important question, if the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who indeed? If the Lord was to take tallies out and mark our sins, who could stand in front of him, perfect, blameless, white as snow, righteous. There is one. There is one, and his name is Jesus. And of course, it is us who can cast our tally marks on Jesus, who can take just the myriad of marks against our name and cast them onto Jesus, knowing that he is completely and totally perfect, that he is completely and totally righteous, that he can receive all of that iniquity. What this chapter calls the iniquity of our sins. He can take that on. He can die for it. He can finish it on the cross. He can justify you perfectly. But then, as Jesus raises, he raises you also. So when we hear this verse, listen, I want you to hear this. 
When we hear this verse, ask the question, you, O Lord, if you marked iniquities, who could stand? And I want your heart response to be, me, I can stand. Not because of any work that I've done, not because there weren't tally marks to my name, but because Jesus has taken all of those. He's taken the penalty for all of those, all of them. He's died for them, and he's raised you to newness of life that you might stand. That you might stand. That you might stand with him in perfection. Jesus is the only one who can stand God's judgment, but he is no longer the only one who is standing in front of the Father. I want to prove it to you because we do not just see that we are in the depths of despair in our sin or that we are waiting like watchmen for this one who can stand, but we take a look at the character of the one who came, the loving Lord. Let us discover what it's like to stand with him. I want you to do this this morning if you feel comfortable with it. I I want you to uh, take note specifically of the word with in this passage. And if you want to, you could even circle, you could highlight, you could underline the word with, because what that word with in verse 4 and twice in verse 7 is going to tell us, it's going to tell us the character of this Lord. It's going to tell us with whom we stand. With you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness. Verse 4 says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What is the character of the one that we stand with? He is forgiving. Why do we wait rather than work? It's because our work will do no good at doing away with all of those tally marks. It won't do anything for us, but rather waiting on Jesus, the one who is forgiving, waiting on him with faith to pull you out is exactly what we need to do. We need to know. We need to know in our heart of hearts that Jesus is forgiving and that waiting is an element of faith and that waiting on the person of Jesus is sure. Why? Because he's the only one that can pull us out. Who is the person that we are standing with? It's Jesus. What is he like? What is it like to stand with him? It's to stand with forgiveness. Listen, I want to make a real brief point of application here. So many of us came in this building this morning carrying our tally marks on our backs. We lived a week, we've lived a month, we've lived over years, some of us over decades with tally marks of sin on our back and we feel crushed into the depths of despair. And what we need to do is to take a look at the one who is forgiving, the one who has the power of forgiveness of sins and choose to stand with him this morning. To stand, not to crawl, not to crouch, not to beg, not to lie flat, but to know that he wants us to stand alongside of him. Jesus is the one with forgiveness in his hands and he gives it to you. But we also see that with the Lord there is steadfast love. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for, the, in, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. So many of us approach Jesus, approach the Father, approach the Spirit like God is just angry with us because of these tally marks. 
We, we choose to try to hide away from him in the depths of despair. We just go, there's no way that God could love a person like me with this many tally marks. I'm going to go back to that depression in my life. I'm going to go back to the pit of despair. I'm going to go back to the depths because we just walk into a room like this and we go, there's no way God could love me. And what you need to hear this morning is this, that his love is steadfast. It's not dependent on what you do. We already said that it was a matter of faith, that we wait on him. We don't work for him in order to earn our salvation, right? So what is the character? What is the nature of his love? How deep is his love? It is steadfast. It's not dependent on what you did this week. It's dependent on Jesus. Listen, I, I, will, I will confess to you this morning that I teach my kids conditional love. They do something wrong and I withdraw, I retreat a little bit, I give a look of disapproval. My love, I'm, I'm teaching them over and over again that my love is conditional. Now, now if, they, if you could see my heart, it's not at all. There's nothing that they could do that would remove that love that I have so deeply needed into my heart for them. But all the time, in my sin, in my weakness, I'm telling them, my love is conditional. And we treat God like that. We think that God is like us in conditionality for our love, but he's not. His love is steadfast. It is sure. It is founded. It cannot be moved. The Father's love for the faithful is unconditional. Maybe you walked into this room this morning, and that's the thing that you needed to hear all week. You feel like because of this thing, that unkind word, this thought, that motivation, this lustful act, that you know, unkind word to your spouse, the, uh, the rendedness of your relationship with a person, because of your hate in your heart that you're harboring towards a coworker that God does not love you or that he's retreated away from you and you needed to hear this morning, God's love is steadfast for you. When you stand with Jesus, his love for you is steadfast. Lastly, we learn that with him there is plentiful redemption. O Israel, hope in the Lord. With, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross enough for you? Is it enough for you? Not, not just theologically in your head, in your heart do you believe that his sacrifice for you is enough for you. Not enough for another person, not enough for the church kind of some general way. Is it enough for you? I, I wonder this morning if you've wondered at all whether or not his redemption his redemption is plentiful enough for you. How oftentimes do we think that his redemption just must be sparse? It must be for another type of person. It, it couldn't possibly be for me. What we need to hear this morning is that his redemption is plentiful. It's plenty. It's plenty for you. It's plenty full. Beloved, God's love for you, his redemption for you, it's plentiful. 
I love little places in the psalm like this because uh, in the psalms you get this poetry that uses words that you never would have said. You could have been given an infinite number of pieces of paper and you could have sat down and tried to write things out. And I just don't think that anybody in this room would have said, his redemption is plentiful. And here the Spirit of God is saying, there's plenty for you. God has an everlasting, unending cornucopia of redemption available for his saints. It's available for you. We wait with the sure, steadfast hope of forgiveness in the loving Lord of plentiful redemption. What does this mean for those of us in sin, in the depths, in the despairing of our iniquities. It means that we wait on and hope in the Lord amidst the depths of despairing sin. And that if we do that, if we wait and hope in him, that we will not stay in the depths of despair, but we will stand on the peaks of perfection with our Lord Jesus Christ as redeemed citizens in the kingdom of righteousness. So what I want to encourage you this morning in closing to do is to simply acknowledge when you are in sin to God. It's not as if he doesn't know. But then to go one step uh, further, that in faith you would know that you don't just acknowledge but that you can cry out, that you can cast your cares on him, knowing that he loves you. And I want to tell you this morning, not just to do that for some weak, mamby-pamby Lord, but one who is filled with forgiveness towards you. I want to encourage you not to work for your own redemption, but to wait hopefully in a loving Lord who will provide it and to have faith that with Jesus there is forgiveness of sin and there is plenty of redemption for you. Lastly, I want to just mention this last part in verse 8. He will redeem Israel from all his, what, iniquities. So, so at the very beginning we get this question, if God was to tally all of the iniquities, who could stand? And at the very end, we get this uh, book in that says that because God loves us and is forgiving towards us and is redemptive, that he has plenty of it to give, that he will redeem all of Israel from his iniquities. It's enough, not only for you, but for all of God's people. So I want to I say this before we stand up, before we take communion, before we sing songs together. Remember when I mentioned that the Psalms, uh, this psalm in particular, begins with the individual, begins with the worship in your heart, begins with not just what you know, but what you desire, the affections of your heart, the emotions, seeks to form those emotions in you individually, for you to know also that your individual worship impacts the worship of others. That we see that because Jesus starts with you, provides redemption for you, but then he redeems all of his people. So this morning, it's not just you here worshiping, but I do want to encourage you to worship. It's us together. God's redeemed people that are going to be singing songs to our Savior. So if you would, please stand. I'm going to pray over communion and then ask you to come forward to receive it. God and Father, your redemption is plentiful. Lord, 
your redemption is not just enough to cover over our sins. If we could see the oceans of redemption that is available for your people, we would see bathing in that redemption legions of believers, those who have come before us, those who are uh, counted in the hundreds of millions right now here on this earth, those who are to come. Lord, we would see just how vast your redeeming purposes are in Jesus Christ. So we thank you for the one who bears forgiveness, whose love is steadfast, and whose redemptive power is mighty. I pray that you would help us believe it, that you would help us sing to it, Lord, that you would help us worship in it this morning. Lord, because of all of these things that you have spoken to us, we praise you and we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.